With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Joining us this week on Amazing Avenue Audio, uh, he's been on the show several times before. You know his work from uh, For the Win at USA Today. Uh, before that, you probably knew him from Ted Quarters uh, and Mets Blog uh, back back in its heyday, I would say. Uh, but Ted Berg is with us. Ted, thanks for coming on. Chris, thanks for having me. Uh, so yeah, we'll just get right to it. You know... We talked about the trade that the Mets made uh, as it was sort of happening on last week's episode. You know, we knew most of the details, but nothing was official yet. Uh, you know, so that we, we were a little bit ahead, but it was all pretty much on point in terms of where the trade was. But uh, you were one of the people who I had, saw, uh, had seen out there on Twitter who was, you know, getting into uh, the, the pro-Cano movement before the trade even really got anywhere near finalized. Yeah, so. I mean, I, I guess, you know, I would say I've been, I think, part of a pro-Robinson Cano movement for like the last 15 years or something now, it feels like. <laughs> it, um, you know, for whatever reason, the guy has always been sort of a divisive player. Um, a guy, when he was with the Yankees, I think uh, sort of victim of like – armchair body language expertise and people saying like, Oh, this guy doesn't want to run hard. This guy doesn't want to, because, uh, he has a way of making things look so like almost like Carlos Beltran, uh, as a, as an aesthetic player where he makes things look so easy that people sort of say he's not trying very hard. Uh, and, and that's always rubbing the wrong way just because if you look at the stats, like really there's just no more consistent player in the league. Uh, there's no one who's a better bet to play, 155 games a season and and so to me it's always sort of nuts that people would say you don't like playing baseball when meanwhile you're playing 161 games every year right like you could bow out a few times and and <laughs> right. uh, and, and not have to face that so uh, so I was uh, I was defending him uh, I, I guess I'm I'm used to defending Cano uh, and as it pertains to the Mets specifically uh, I think a lot of the criticism I saw of the deal were and some of it's fair some of it's fair right he's old he's 36 he's not going to be getting any better um and so a lot of people say well why would you want a 36 year old why why would why do we need a 36 year old second baseman but cano it's not like it's just it's not like you're bringing back 
as Dribble Cabrera, right? And and no disrespect to him or Neil Walker. Cano is Cano is a, a Hall of Fame caliber talent, right? It's it's off the charts in terms of uh, it's not just any other any old mid thirties acquisition. He's a really really good player who was a really really good player last year. He was a really really good player after he came back from a suspension and a fairly small sample last season, uh, and has really just hasn't been bad since like one lousy year, I think, in two thousand eight. So. The idea that he's going to just show up and completely fall apart because he's in his late 30s seemed ridiculous to me. Uh, and then the flip side of it, I guess, also is just the amount of uh, love all of a sudden. And look, I know people love prospects and fans always overrate their home team's prospects. But, you know, all of a sudden it seems like now Jared Kellenick and and Justin Dunn climb from the bottom half of the most top 100, top 100 prospect lists to – like can't miss the next coming of Mike Trout, <laughs> right. Trout and Clayton Kershaw. Right. Yeah. So hitting on a few of those points, you know, the career arc for Cano sort of looks like what I'd imagine David Wrights would have looked like if his body hadn't, you know, essentially fallen apart for baseball purposes. Um, yeah, I think th- I think that's fair. I mean, you know, he's very consistent, very good, uh, and like a one of these guys who does everything really well and and few things sort of exceptionally off the charts well. Like, Cano's not going to hit 70 home runs, right? Wasn't going to hit 70 home runs, whatever. But just a great player, you know? And and Cano, I think what was so baffling about the PED thing for me was with Cano was, like, if I, I felt like if he didn't if he didn't fail that test, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, you know? Even if he retired this year. I think he's there. I mean, just like the numbers are there for for second baseman. There just haven't been a lot of guys at that position as good as he has been. Right, and I mean, just thinking of a recent guy, relatively recent guy. You know, I like Craig Biggio. I don't have any problem with him getting into the Hall of Fame. That that, that was fine with me. Um, Cano is <laughs> he's he's been better than that. Um, yeah, pretty, yeah. I mean, pretty substantially. He is. You know, I, I think that he's like the third or fourth best active player, you know, and, and he's still got a few, few years to go in terms of, in terms of war. Uh, I don't know. He's just, I think he's, I feel like I've been, every time I've written about Robinson Cano in my entire life, uh, it has been defending him against something. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe there's something to it. And I, I guess there are, there are aspects of his game that tend to irritate people. Uh, the PED thing certainly doesn't help, but He's a really great player. That's you know the bottom line is and 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 that's the thing is is people will come around and a lot of it will have to do with how the Mets play and if they win and and I think that uh, this deal obviously you can't really look at it in a vacuum. Uh, what uh, I, and I guess that's another aspect to it that I kind of like, right? Is if you if the Mets had if it was like a Marlins deal and the Mets were trading away all of their expensive salaries for nothing because they clearly wanted to you know, reap revenue sharing money and, and profit off it. Well, that that's a deal you can be upset about. This is a deal that, for better or worse, and even if it blows up in their faces, it indicates that they earnestly want to win, right? And and that hasn't always been obvious with the Mets. Um, and, and, you know, you can, I guess, criticize the way they're trying to go about it. But I think for, for Van Wagenen and for the front office, it sort of says, like, okay, yeah, like, we, we still believe – this pitching t- staff has a championship in it, and we're going to put together you know, the best team to 
win with DeGrom and Syndergaard and, and Wheeler and Mats within the next two or three years because uh, eventually these guys are going to leave. Right, and even if they're able to extend DeGrom or Syndergaard or both or or if it's you know one or neither of them and it's Wheeler instead, you know, things change. But, yeah, that acknowledgement that, you know, there are two options here. I mean, I think we all – well – I don't want to judge. I say this to other people all the time, so I don't want to judge the whole offseason after one move that I like. But, you know, it's an acknowledgement that there's guys who are here now. We just saw what it looks like when Jacob deGrom is the best pitcher on the planet and his team doesn't support not just him in terms of the win-loss record, but, you know, even being competitive as a team. So this acknowledgement that we have, you know, Elite talent here with these guys, uh, with him and Syndergaard, uh, assuming they keep Conforto and Nimmo, you know, you have something here and you're going to add to it and, and try to make it better. And yeah, with Kellenic, I'm with you. You know, I the way reactions were going as it was going on, I think they cooled off a little bit maybe the next the day. The guy was like a pretty good hitter in rookie ball. You know, it's like, like it, if, He's he's four months younger than than Vlad Guerrero Jr. and he and and that's not to knock him. I know he's a cold weather player, and you can say okay, he's on a different sort of growth curve. And scouts love his natural hitting ability. There have been a lot of guys who have really earned the love of scouts with their natural hitting ability, who have amounted to nothing. I, like you, can, I I I think that the amount of information now available to us online sometimes hurts us in these departments because you you can you look through long enough you're going to find some scout somewhere reported as raving about Kellenic and that makes you paranoid right because you want you don't now now sadly once your team trades the guy away now you're kind of rooting against him right and so you you see the the report that this guy is is the greatest natural hitter in his class and you think, oh, crap, now they, they traded Mike Trout. You know, this guy's going to be incredible. It, it, the odds say I, – I mean, I honestly think that there's a, a really good chance Cano gives the Mets more. Cano alone, without even factoring in Diaz, that Cano alone gives the Mets more than, than Kalanick and Dunn will do for their entire careers. Just because he's been that good of a player. He's like a, a three-and-a-half to four-win player annually. And neither of those guys is a safe bet to even be a big league contributor at this point. Right. And, yeah, the way it was getting talked about in the moment, you know, I thought, well, I want to see him listed as a top-ten prospect in all of baseball. The way <laughs> the way that people yeah, were reacting and, to this. And like, you know, and, and, again, like everybody overrates their own team's prospects. And he is a guy who... I think is more of a wild card than than most, just because he is coming from Wisconsin and and uh, his had limited exposure in high school, um, and that's why I guess I, I keep bringing up Trout because I think Trout sort of crept up on people that same way. Now, by the time Trout was Kellenic's age, I think he was the number two prospect in in all of baseball. So, uh, if this guy was as good as people fear. And again, I'm not trying to crap on a 19-year-old who is playing rookie ball. He's obviously way better at baseball than me or anyone else I've ever met in my life uh, outside of the professional baseball players. <laughs> uh, but but he but you, you can't you just can't bet on it. You just can't like he didn't he didn't even beat the crap out of rookie ball pitching, right? So it's it's a it's a big stretch to say like oh this is a can't miss guy. 
But everybody listening to the Amazing Avenue podcast knows that, right? Because you, you're <laughs> you're dealing in smart baseball fans here. Yes, our, our listeners are very smart. I, I like all the ones I've met and who have written in have come from a good. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. It's a it's a it's a smart baseball site, right? So you would hope that you would have smart smart listeners. I'd like to think we do. Uh, but yeah, one thing that you know, it certainly is getting framed as the Cano trade. Um, but Diaz is, you know, relative to his peers, and Cano's still up there. I definitely agree with you on that. But relative to his peers, Diaz might actually be the best at his job. You know, Brody Van Wagenen introduces him at the press conference and says, here's the, you know, this is the best closer in baseball. And, you know, it's it's tough to make that claim as a GM and be able to point to stuff and back it up and say, hey, that might actually be true. So I'm just curious, um, you know, I, I, I know uh, it, on the national level, you might have a little more exposure to some guys on the West Coast um, than we do, or even just from seeing the Mariners, even though it's only once a year, um, you know, when they come in to play the Yankees here in the Bronx, have you had much chance to see Diaz pitch? I, I mean, I've seen him mostly in highlights. I've, I wind up watching, uh, because I watch the Angels so much, I wind up watching a pretty good deal of, of AL West baseball, but usually not ninth inning AL West baseball because I'm long <laughs> asleep by then. So, uh, so most of what I've seen from, from Diaz is, is highlights and stats. But yeah, I mean, the stats are there, right? He's an elite 24-year-old closer. He's under team control for several more years. And I think a, a thing I think a lot of people are sort of missing on this one is if he stays healthy, that value is not going away. And so, right, because it's not like he's a, a rental player that you're taking on in the last year of his contract. He is an elite closer. He's young. He's he's under control. He's he's cheap. And so, if this completely blows up in their face, right, and and Cano is horrible, and you know Degrom and Cindergard both get hurt, they both need Tommy John, and they're both out through next year, and there's no chance they're going to win in the next two seasons. They can flip him at the deadline, and I feel like probably get a package of prospects back that's just as impressive as Dunn and Kellenic. right? So, like, I, I don't see – I feel like it's being painted as, okay, this means they're all in to win now. But Diaz isn't that, right? Because he is so young and he is under team control for a while. So either he is now your closer and, you you know, you ink him in for the ninth inning and, and he's got it for, for the next four years – or if it looks like you, you're not going to really have a contender and you really do need a rebuild, then he is an agent of that rebuild because you can definitely – I mean teams we've seen even after it seems like everyone knows you shouldn't pay too much for a reliever, teams are still doing it, right? Because uh, ultimately it comes down to July and you're, you're looking at your bullpen and you need a, a guy to lock down the final innings for the postseason – you're going to blink and spend too much to get that guy. So I feel like their their hedge here is that they can always just flip them way down the road. Yeah, yeah, and that's especially the way bullpen use has gotten, you know, in the <clears throat> in the playoffs over the last few years. You know, you, you're in a spot where people, even if they have one or two good guys, uh, could definitely find him appealing either as their best or second best option. So, uh, yeah, that that's certainly valid. Um, 
you know, one of the things that I've heard a couple times, and and I heard it, uh, I didn't hear all of the group interview of Francesa talking to Van Wagenen, Mickey Calloway, and Jeff Wilpon. Um, but something Francesa brought up that I had seen somewhere else that I, I don't remember where, uh, but it was, oh, are you concerned about the, the mileage on Cano? He's played so many games. And it's like, what? I thought guys playing a lot of games was a good thing. You know, that that's right. something we praise guys for. Right. It's like, oh, so so they should bring in A.J. Pollock because he's got his legs are rested because he's missed half a season in the last three straight years. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, I mean, Cano has been. He was injured when he got when he got popped for the PEDs last year, but that was that was really the first injury of his career. You know, he's been a remarkably healthy player, and so that's good. You know, and I, I feel like that also speaks to a guy's ability to hold up into his late thirties, right? If he had been someone whose whole career had been marred by injuries from the time he's twenty six, it's maybe one story. And and if he's a guy who has been healthy and consistent, then you know you have to you have to. Hope he does hold up. I don't. I don't know. I don't. I just don't think. I. It feels like people were painting it, and and everyone I spoke to was like, "Oh, you have to take on Cano to get Diaz." It's like, well, it's not a like a. It's not that this guy is simply an albatross contract that you're accepting. This is a really good player who is making slightly too much money. Right, and I think part of the thing with the Mets too, and you know, you always have to be apprehensive about what they're going to spend. But you, they were at a spot where, after the next two seasons, they literally didn't have any money guaranteed to anybody. So even the Mets, even with Cano on the books, you know, if we go through that the bad scenario that you laid out, you know, they don't. Excuse me, ah, sinuses this time of year are the best. Um, but if they go through all that and they don't contend, they trade Diaz away for prospects. They could still end up having a payroll that's well under a hundred million dollars in twenty twenty one if they were really in like a full rebuild mode, you know. So it's. I not... mean, I, I hope it never comes to that. No, right? no, me like, too. You, you don't want to. <laughs> you don't want to see the Mets spending less than a hundred million dollars on payroll. But yeah, you're right. I mean, right? It's not. It's not. It's not even like a. I don't know. It just doesn't seem like. This is the type of deal, especially when you're getting $20 million in relief and you're getting Jay Bruce off your books. Like, this should not be a deal. It might, or they might point to it as a deal that hamstrings them down the road because it's the Mets. But in any, like, logical, real-world scenario, five years and $100 million for Robinson Cano should not hamstring a team playing in the largest market in the country. It just shouldn't. You know, it's just... Um, I, I get that he, I don't think he would make that if you were a free agent now, but I think he'd get four and 60, right? I think he might get four and 70, something like that, even coming after off the PEDs. Uh, I was seeing that framed as like, oh, Cano wouldn't get more than, than three and 30. And I don't buy that either. He was worth $30 million last year, basically. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's absurd. Um, you know, it, it's. I don't know. Maybe it's because, and I've been saying this for a couple of years. Maybe it's because I'm in my 30s now that I, you know, I'm more like I'm here to defend. You're like 36? That's not old. <laughs> That's not old. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, and I get it. Like I know, you know, I know how it is in in this sport and really all of them. Um, but I, I think it generally holds true that you know guys who are elite talents like this tend to age better you know not every single one of them does but 
you know, the way Mike Trout is playing at the age he is now, uh, I will not be shocked if he's still way better than most players in the league when he's 36, you know? I mean, like Adrian Beltre is a, is a good comp, right? And he yeah. was just, I know he just retired, but he was still an above average player and he's 39 years old. You know, like you can hope, you can hope for the next three years. Like, I think $24 million a year, which is what they're paying for Cano, in terms of and, – and it's not what they're paying. They're paying him $20 million, right, if you, if you include the salary relief. That's, that's not much more than you should pay for an average big league regular. And I think he's going to be an above-average big league re- regular for, like, at least the next three years. And then maybe he declines to being, like, just okay. And you kind of have to eat it on the back end of the deal. But that's, that's every deal. I don't know. I just It just doesn't seem – like it just seems like a, like where I see Cano and the money left on his deal versus public perception was just like a massive dis- divide, and so probably I'm wrong, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I'd like to. I hope you're right because I I'm, I'm with you on this uh, and most things really when it comes to baseball. Uh, Good, <laughs> but but yeah, no, it's it it sets them up, you know. So in that interview that they did. That, that went on forever, you know. I, I listened. I to- didn't watch it. I just, I, I just kept seeing people on Twitter, like, believe it or not, this Mets interview is still going on with Francesca. <laughs> like, I, I didn't see a minute of it, but uh, yeah, I, I understand it was extremely long. Yeah, and you know, overall, it was from what I heard. I listened to a little bit of it at work, and uh, like only a minute or two after I, you know, got in my car. Um, but it was. Not really hard-hitting questions most of the time. Um, you know, a lot of stuff that you had already heard about, you know, a variety of topics, especially this trade, uh, you know, the insurance money for Cespedes and Wright and all that. A lot of things that were covered on the day of the press conference. And then the only things that at least kind of got me interested uh, were questions about, you know, Harper and Machado and... Basically, I, I'm forgetting now already if it was Jeff Wilpon. I think it was Jeff Wilpon himself who said that, you know, Brody knows what to, the framework to work within. And I think Van Wagenen said. Uh, the, no, the line, I don't. The, the, the line <laughs> yeah. that, well, but he, he said he said we'd have to get really creative to, uh, you know, to make one of those guys work. So with the way the roster stands and if we assume the Mets are not going to make a run at Machado or Harper, which I think we all. I mean, there's no way, right? There's no way. There, I, I don't think there's any way they can, uh, like, unless it's open season again. Then I don't see how someone's not going to give those guys way more money than the Mets can give them. Right. So yeah, if we assume that, uh, you mentioned AJ Pollock. He was one of the names who, you know, has come up recently. Uh, but with him or anybody else who's out there, you know, is there anybody else who you, who you love for the Mets as the next move or two? I mean, so, you know, this, this, there's now the rumor is that they're going to trade Nimmo or Rosario or Nimmo and Rosario for, for JT Real Muto. I, I assume you've seen that. Uh, yeah. Yes. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. I, I just, and that's like pure, like, uh, that's a lack of reason on, but like, 
how do you trade how do you trade Brandon Nimmo? Are you serious? Have you seen this guy? Like, <laughs> have you not seen this man smile? Like, you have to you have to keep him. You have to keep him. He's too lovable, right? Like that is just to me a straight up troll move. If you're like, hey, everyone loves this guy, good news. We're gonna trade him for an older player. And I also fear that once you start getting into that, like it's like, oh, the Mets are gonna be a team that like makes 17 trades this offseason and signs all the big free agents. Then you're looking at like the Padres of three years ago, where it's like, okay, like you won the offseason. Your team didn't really get that much better, and now you've basically screwed yourself for like seven years moving forward because you got involved in all of these like sort of lousy free agent deals on behalf of winning now. I don't think the Cano deal and and bringing Cano and Diaz uh, prevents them from creating like a sustainable winning franchise. I think it it moves the timeline forward a little bit and, and maybe makes it a little bit difficult on the backside because of of giving up Kellenic and Dunn. But I think if you start talking about trading Nimmo and trading Conforto and and sort of going all in, Real Muto is only under contract for the next two years, right? So then then you're limiting your window. Then you're saying, okay, it's by the end of 2020 that we better contend because now we just gave up, you know, whether it's Nimmo or Conforto, a really good major league outfielder who's under control for the next four years. Um, and so I, I hate that type of move. Like I don't think they should be looking to part with any of their young big leaguers. Uh, I think it, I think you got to set the window at like next next three four years, not just like oh we're gonna win immediately because I think that's unfeasible. And I think then if one guy gets hurt, especially a guy on the pitching staff, then that just all falls apart. Yeah, and um, I, so so it doesn't answer your question. <laughs> um, they, I mean, clearly they. It seems like they need a catcher. I don't know how much you can trust Arno at this point to stay healthy. Uh, Flawecki had moments, you know, like, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I wouldn't, I'm, Grandal is a guy, it's like, you know, joining now Robinson Cano, you're just going to bring in all of the least popular dudes from around the league, but Grandal's a really good catcher, you know, and, and a guy who's been, uh, a great defensive player, a great pitch framer, and a really, really good hitter for a catcher, uh, that I think still has some life left, and I think when you... Talk about free agents like that, then you know, yeah, you're gonna lose something. And I, I believe he did get the. Uh, did they give him a qualifying order offer, Grandal? Do you know? Yeah, they did, and he turned it down. So, so you're gonna give up the draft picks to get him, and and that stinks. Um, but I, I would rather. I think every everyone who's ever seen Brandon Nimmo smile would rather give up a draft pick than Brandon Nimmo to get a to get a pretty good catcher. Um, and so you know, I would I would like to see them pursue the, the free agent route there. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I kind of want to wait and see and, and see how Van Wagenen goes about it. Um, I liked the Cano move in, in isolation and, and Diaz. Um, but now, now that there's ensuing talk, it makes me a little nervous like that. It's like, okay, let me just reshape this team in my image uh, and make a bunch of moves for the sake of making moves and not necessarily make the best moves. Right. Yeah, no. Um, but that's probably paranoia, and it could just be that a lot of things get reported. Yeah, yeah, no, and it, it certainly seems like there are, you know, there's there's no shortage trade, of information. You can't trade Brandon Nimmo. You just can't trade Brandon Nimmo. <laughs> don't trade. Don't trade Brandon Nimmo. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Yeah, I, I think I think you are preaching to the choir in, in terms of the audience here. Uh, you know, it, it's I don't know, like I like to me 
I'd bring back Curtis Granderson for similar reasons. And the fact that he was still pretty useful last year or this year. Yeah, and so, good. Um, but yeah, uh, Real Muto, Muto uh, is he's awesome. Uh, really good player. If I had confidence that they would go get Harper, then sure, I could give up Conforto for Real Muto and, <clears throat> you know, bring in Harper. And all of a sudden, those I mean, are Harper was, uh, you know, yeah, Harper's a, a better bet than Conforto. Harper wasn't even that much better than Conforto last year, you know, like, and, and uh, I would be wary of, like, giving up the cheap guys to have, like, expensive replacements who are not that much better. I like it. Right? That's a bold take. I like it, though. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's not a bold take. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, the Harper Conforto thing. It, it, what that 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 Harper? I mean, it's it's true. Like Harper was pretty good. You know, like he's a he's a really right. patient hitter. He gets on base a lot, but like he's not a he's not a perfect offensive baseball player. He's been he's been hurt a bunch of times. He's prone to striking out. He's prone to big slumps. And you're not. I mean, Machado is a different situation. I think because I think Machado is a, a more valuable player just because he can play defense because he can do a lot of different things. I'm. I'm not saying. I'm not trying to say Michael Conforto is as good as Bryce Harper. I'm just saying he's not so much worse that like the difference between whatever you're going to pay Conforto in arbitration, which is going to be like six million or something, and the thirty-six million a year you might have to give Bryce Harper. I don't think Harper is thirty million dollars better than Conforto, and so I don't feel like that's the right way to go about upgrading your team. Right. Well, yeah, no, that that makes sense. And I, um, you know, not trying to detract from Harper, but a lot of times because of the hype that surrounded him and the fact that he's been successful in the major leagues, uh, you know, he gets talked about like he's up there with Trout and it just hasn't happened. Laughable. It's laughable to compare him to Trout. It's unfair to both of them. Right. You know, I feel like it's it's like it's just mean to Bryce Harper to be like, hey, you're almost as good as Mike Trout because he's just not. And, <laughs> and it's like and like this guy might be a Hall of Famer, but the longer you compare him to to Mike Trout, the worse he's going to look because he's just nowhere close. Right. So, you know, with that said, he's a, he's a very good player. Um, you know, he's still young enough that he could develop further in terms of either power or, or you know just learning the game um so is conforto for the record right so is right conforto. oh yeah 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 no absolutely uh, i think they're basically the same age so yeah that that general way of approaching it just signed grandal uh, and you'll have and, to excuse the autoplay video on bryce harper's baseball reference page <laughs> it's uh yes of course uh but yeah no it's certainly reasonable to to want to keep those guys and and just sign some players um you know with where they are now it's and real muto i feel like i don't know he's he's definitely really good definitely i would say the best all-around catcher in baseball right now uh one of the the very few who can hit and so is grandal um but you know you you look at it and if the Marlins price remains really really high and nobody meets it and they go into the season and they still have this guy who is 
you know, coming to work and playing in the uniform and, and just hating every second of it because he wants out of there. Uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, not just the Mets, but maybe other teams can wait the Marlins out a little bit and try to lower the price, you know, get into the season and and look at it from there. Um, I mean, he is he's coming off the best season of his career offensively. He's a like you said, he's a really good player. Um, I don't know. I'm. Like, on one hand, there are so few good-hitting catchers, like you said, that it's like, okay, so maybe this is the guy who's worth going for. But on the other hand, the reason there are so few good-hitting catchers is that teams move the good hitters off catcher because they don't want to risk them. And and, and so, uh, you know, going, going like, sort of spending big on a offensive-minded catcher there's a lot of risk involved in that, right? Because it's just a position where guys get hurt all the time, and so I don't know. I just, it's just I'm I'm if if yeah, like you said, if you wait them out and the price is right, and you don't have to give up one to two major league ready uh, young players, then then great, you know, go. I mean, he's an awesome player, but you can't you just don't trade Nimmo. Just don't do it. That's my thing. <laughs> it's just I I don't know. Just don't do it. I, hey, I like it. Um, let's see. So, so shifting away from, uh, you know, the off season a little bit, it's obviously been exciting. You know, we, <laughs> for us, it's been nice. We haven't had to like write a bunch of free agent profiles of guys who the Mets are never going to sign because there's actually some stuff going on. You know, they make a big move. There's enough rumors. Uh, it, it's been a little more fulfilling than usual for this stage of the off season uh, from like the, you know, how the amazing avenue sausage is made process uh but looking back you know you you've uh you've gotten to still despite you know having a, a broader scope with baseball you've still gotten to see a lot of the mets um any any particular moments either uh, you know whether it was Degrom or david wright's final game uh that you know, you were at City Field or or at a game on the road that you saw them that stuck out from this season, uh, despite. Uh, so yeah, so I was at the I was at Wright's final game. I was also at the I thought the the press conference with Wright was actually like a little bit sadder than the game. I thought the game was more like well, a little bit weird than anything else. Just um, I don't know, and like David Wright deserved it, and I'm happy that he was able to get back out on the field and do that. And I think if there's a single player who merits that treatment. Like he is that guy just because I think he's like one of the world's best people, basically like from, (laughs) from everything you can figure out. Um, but it did feel like a little bit of a farce, you know, that like, Oh, like this guy who can't play baseball anymore, we're just going to let play baseball for a few innings. You know, it just, it had a little, little bit of like a, uh, sort of circus element to it that I didn't love. Like, I feel like probably Wright didn't really absolutely love that necessarily either. I, I don't know. Um, whereas the, the press conference, I thought, seemed like so genuinely emotional and I just felt so bad for the dude. And like that, I, I don't know. Um, like I said at the time, like there, the one time, like if, if you look back throughout David Wright's career, like the only times he ever got mad were when people were like, oh, you have to come out of this baseball game. And, <laughs> right, like, that was it. That was the only thing he wanted to do was just play baseball. And now, like, to be 35 years old and your body is like, oh, no, sorry, you can't play baseball anymore. Like, what a what a rough 
deal. You know, like what a crappy draw in life to get that. And and like he's this guy who's will say like, you know, don't pity him. And I get it. Like he's he's filthy rich and he has this lovely family and he's been able to play baseball for so long. But like I, I don't care. That sucks, man. Like that, you know, to 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 have such a good career end that way. Uh, no matter what he's what spoils he's gotten from it, it still kind of sucks. And and I think you know he he I'm sure feels that way too. Um, so I, I thought that was um, I don't know that that moved me more than I think anything that happened on the field this year. And and it was also uh, you know Jay Harwood's leaving. Like Jay was there and and he seemed pretty emotional that that night. And that kind of made me a little sad too. Um, just seeing you know it's like uh, I'm I'm away from it now, but. The, there's so much more to an organization, a baseball team, than just ultimately like the games on the field, and and there is this sort of family culture to it, and uh, you could sense the connection that everyone had to David Wright in the room, and seeing all his play, his teammates come in, and uh, several of those guys had tears in their eyes, and and how how sh- shaken they seemed by the press conference and then seeing, you know, the Mets employees who deal with them and how emotional they were. It, it really, I don't know. It really sort of, it, it hurt. It was sad. It was like, this is, it was a sad day. Um, even, you know, for as much as it led to this like lovely celebration of his career, uh, it's a sad way for his career to end for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, unfortunately I, I, wasn't able to make that game uh and i wasn't at the press conference but you know i i, I think in terms of the overall feel of, of sort of celebrating his career and everything i i feel like a number retirement ceremony might be like might feel a little more natural than that last yeah game. And, I, and i gotta imagine that'll come right like they, i mean how could they not <clears throat> yeah no it's it, i mean you never know they could find a way to screw it up but <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I thought all things considered, considering it's the Mets, like, I didn't think they handled it all that poorly. In rights, you know, like, it was like, uh, they gave him, you know, like, clearly what he was working, at some point it became that he was working to try to get back on the field so he could go out on his own terms. They gave him that opportunity. Uh, people got, I remember, like, it, now it's, it's like, fading in the mirror already. I remember, like, people got upset that they didn't let him talk after a game before he played or whatever. I don't know. Like, I I think if you're from a fan's perspective, like he got his moment at the press conference to sort of say his piece. Uh, he got his opportunity to go out on the field and tip his cap and say goodbye. And I think that given the circumstances, uh, the money owed and the, the way it ended and how bad the team was, like, I thought that that was a pretty – sunny way for the Mets to have hand. Like, I, I don't think, I don't think, I, obviously like the situation sucks. I don't think the Mets made it any worse other than whatever they did to probably like ruin him in, in, in physical capacity years ago. You know, like I think in terms of 2018 and David Wright and leaving the game, I think it went about as smoothly as they could have hoped. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and hopefully the concept and execution of a number of retirement would, would go well. Um, so, yeah, that that's – David Wright is never the wrong answer. Uh, I, I don't think when it comes to good Mets moments. Um, I mean, know. other than that, you t- I mean, other than – I mean, there, it wasn't 
There weren't. I tell you, you know, at the beginning there, it was like, wow, man, this team's going to be incredible. They keep having all these comeback wins. Right. And then that soured, <laughs> that soured swiftly, you know? And so, I mean, other than that, there weren't a lot of great moments that stood out of that, that season, right? Like that, just, you know, obviously DeGrom. Right. And, you know, Nimmo, like I said, sort of emerging as a player. And, and Zach Wheeler had, having a really nice year. Like, there are some glimmers for optimism but it was not a great season. You know, it was a it was a pretty brutal one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, unfortunately. Ho- hopefully, whatever happens, hopefully it's not that long before we're closer to a 2015 experience than a 2018 right. experience. Um, and, hey, Jeff McNeil was good. That was cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's... They it's managed nice... to find 230 at-bats for Jose Reyes. <laughs> they sure that did. Was, that was that was cool. Um, yeah. Um, uh, actually, so I'm I'm curious because when the, uh, you know, one of the things you were tweeting about when the Cano stuff was, you know, in the in the works about to go down was that McNeil might be in it. So I, I you know, I heard that. I mean, that was that was one of the rumors at some point, but, uh, you know, I didn't. It wasn't like something that I like, I, I don't report on this stuff. I don't pursue trade rumors. I just think, well, why don't I just wait and find out what happens? Um, you know, like I, I would be much better at my job if I were digging up scoops, but, uh, it seems like a, a lot of effort for, uh, you know, knowing 10 minutes before it actually happens. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, mostly it was just that, uh, the, a lot of the sentiment about Cano was like, Oh my God, you can't block Jeff McNeil. Uh, and like I love, I love to watch him. Jeff McNeil. Hopefully, he's awesome. He's the type of player uh, I think you know. Like I, I love the the sort of older prospect who was never really a hot commodity and and hit his way up and and finally gets a chance. I love that guy. Like that um, that profile is one that certainly very much appeals to me. Like a a TJ Rivera before him. Um, but <laughs> right. like Jeff, I mean, to this, it's just like pump the brakes. The guy has 60 games or whatever it is. And you're saying like, Oh, like you got it. You can't have, you can't bring in hall of famer Robinson Cano because Jeff McNeil is there. There's playing time for both of these guys, right? Like you're going to be able to find ways to get Jeff McNeil on the field. It sounds like they're going to use him a third and, and no one's going to be able to complain all that much, but like, you know, we, you gotta, how many times have we seen guys have nice 60 game starts to their careers and suddenly you're building the future around them and then they wind up not really panning out. And and again, I'm rooting for Jeff McNeil. I'm just saying you gotta you gotta allow for the chance that this guy is not, uh, you know, Mike Schmidt now as the third baseman, or uh, pick a Hall of Fame second baseman as a second baseman. There's you know there's there's always a really strong chance of regression, especially with guys who sort of arrive out of nowhere and and he had a great season in in triple a last year as well and there's some hitting in his past but it's not like this guy was you know a thousand ops every single season in the minors he came together late hopefully stays this good it's not a it's not a guarantee obviously right you know that that's all fair for sure um and it's nice to have it at least for now, it's a situation where he's sticking around, and you know we've we've seen how seasons go. It's not just the Mets, even if it is maybe the Mets a little more than average. 
but <clears throat> playing time will open up. Right. It's very rare when you're like, oh, we just have too many good players. <laughs> right? Right. It just does not happen very often. Right. And it, it's rare to just get through a season with any four guys. I mean, you, you group the infield together because they're all infielders. But if you were to just pick four guys on a roster and say, oh, yeah, those guys are going to be healthy and good all year, you know, it, it's hard to do. Those late 90s infields, the, sure. You know, I feel like Olerud, Alfonso, Ordonez, and Ventura played a pretty solid you know, I don't recall that my memory might be off, but I don't recall any of them getting hurt for a significant amount of time in those couple of years when they were like really good. Yeah. And I think, I think also something that's changed since that time is like, that was, it was weird. Like ba- baseball trended toward uh, specialization for so long that, and now it seems to be sort of going back the other way. And so you do get guys like, uh, I mean, Ben Zobris is sort of the classic example because he was, uh, at the front of it, but now it seems like a lot of teams figure out ways to move guys around and even superstars, right? Like Chris Bryant and, and Alex Bregman are not too big to be locked into one position and that's the one they play. So if Jeff McNeil is going to be a guy who who has a 900 OPS like he did in, in last season, you're going to find you're going to find a bat for him, even if you have Cano and even if Alonzo's good and even if Rosario's good, uh, even if you bring in a third baseman, you know, like you can you can move guys around. Uh, I think that that the like the league wide mentality has changed a little bit toward like hell, like it's just, you know, catching the ball and throwing the ball. I'll stand wherever. Right. Uh, and, I, and I think the shifts have probably made that easier a, a bit as well. Uh, so, you know, if you've got. If a guy can hit, they're going to find out bats for him. And that's true of McNeil, whether or not they've got Robbins Cano on the team. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess uh, on the non-baseball side of things, did you encounter well, – what's the best new sandwich you encountered over the last year? Huh. <laughs> were, uh, were, oh, were there um, several – So uh, I think the best – the one that jumps to my head is actually a a burger Um, at – there's a – it's a growing series of restaurants. Uh, Emily and like Pizza Loves Emily or Emmy Squared is one. Um, It's like a family. But their their burger is sort of a double-stacked patty with their special sauce and and onions. It's like – and on a pretzel bun. It sounds very straightforward. You have to see the thing. I, it looks so beautiful that I was skeptical of it because I was like, I think that they made this for Instagram and <laughs> that there's no way this tastes as good as it looks. And then I went there and it absolutely tastes as good as it looks. And so that was the, that was the best sandwich. That was the best sandwich I've had in a really long time. Like it was an, an eye opener. I've been back there a couple times since I would like to go more often. Uh, it's sadly not terribly close to my apartment. Um, but yeah, that was the sandwich that jumps out for 2018. And then I was able to, so over the summer, I was able to uh, uh, chase down World Cup foods uh, in the New York area. I wound up eating, it was like part of our World Cup coverage was just me going to different places in Queens and finding the food of different World Cup countries uh, and, and ate really well through that adventure too. Um, like there was some good Senegalese food, it turns out it was delicious. Um, and really enjoyed, uh, so Peruvian style Chinese food is a thing where that you can get in Queens, um, obviously, but like Chinese food is extremely popular in Peru. There are a lot of Chinese, uh, 
ethnically Chinese people living in, in Peru. Um, but obviously the, the way the Chinese food has evolved in Peru is different than the way it did in China and the way it did in the U.S. And so I sort of love that you can go in New York uh, and, and find like this very specific subset of Chinese food, right. which is Chinese food <laughs> via Peru. Uh, and it turns out to be delicious because you can get the Peruvian green sauce and pour that on top of your Chinese food. So that's a strong recommendation for the people looking around. Uh, and, you know, you can eat all of these things before or after Mets games, which I often did. Yeah, you know, that, that's a, a definite bonus. I do wish, it, you know, you look at the way the schedule has been made over the last few years and when it first shifted from Saturday games being, you know, night games instead of day games, I was kind of like, yeah, whatever, that's fine. And now I don't even think it's that I'm getting older. It's just it's been that way for a while. And I'm fine with the game on a Saturday night ending at any time. But it's kind of nice to have like a one o'clock game where you could go do something else in Queens, you know. Yeah, um, I mean – in terms of like eating, like Queens has got to be one of the most interesting places, like literally on the entire planet. Uh, just because I think it, I think it is the most ethnically diverse place in the world, right? Or or among them. Yeah. Um, as far as I, all- as far as I know, it, it, it it's certainly still up there, and it, and it may still have that title. Uh, and and like right around, it's funny. Like uh, you're always sort of presented with this notion of like of city field being in a, a junkyard and to some extent that's true but like it's like a half a mile from city field and you're in the middle of of main street in flushing which is like some just like this incredible like explosion of cultures mostly like asian cultures and tons of delicious chinese food and and i've had malaysian food there and then you go the other way and you're in corona and it's a lot of different latin foods and latin like there's so much to eat and so many different people and i don't know like while city field itself is very isolated it's just not that far to get to like really cool parts of queens now i feel like i'm working for the queensboro president or something but <laughs> i you know i don't know like you like so i i've been riding to riding my bike to games uh, the last couple of years, and it really opens up like a whole world uh, that I just didn't even really know about as someone who would get on the seven train, get off at City Field, and get right back on and come home. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to think if I have anything else. It, it, we uh, we we touched on a lot of good stuff here. Um, How's Taco Bell doing? I think that's a mandatory question before, they are before I let you go. <laughs> rapidly, ex- rapidly expanding in New York City, which is exciting. Um, I, uh, I'm a little hesitant to note that like the newest one near my apartment, I have been to twice, and both times there were more people working there than people waiting for food, and both times I wound up waiting like 15 to 20 minutes for my food. And so, like, that's a sort of a bad sign for me. Like, it's like, oh, like, I, you know, like, what's the point of Taco Bell if you're not going to get your food immediately? Right. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if it's just, like, some hiccups getting off the ground there or what it is. Um, I would like for all of the Taco Bells to run optimally. Um, I got so excited about the new Taco Bell near my apartment. And then so far it has been a little bit of a letdown, if I'm being honest. Yeah. 
Well, hopefully there's room for improvement there. I, be- I believe they'll get there. Yeah, it's Taco Bell. If Taco Bell has shown me one thing, it's that uh, <laughs> they are com- committed to getting me Taco Bell. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, on that note, <clears throat> uh, thank you again, Ted, for uh, joining us this week, and and uh, you know it's always a pleasure. We'll uh, we'll we'll try to have you on some more during the season. Hopefully, we'll have things to celebrate about the Mets and. Uh, yeah, as always, uh, you you can find Ted on Twitter at OG Ted Berg. Uh, his work at For the Win, which is on USA Today's site. It's ForTheWin.com, right? Uh, FTW.USAToday.com. Okay, all right. Um, I don't think it's ForTheWin.com. I don't know why not yet, but hopefully, but that's like the we still don't SMY still working on SMY.com. I think so. You know, sometimes right. these things take a while. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Understandable. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, everybody. This is Steve Seiper. And a few weeks ago, I was talking about the Arizona Fall League and what we could take away from how the players at the Mets and did... And I left off talking about Peter Alonso and Robinson Cano, Edwin Diaz trade happened. So last week is kind of crazy. And obviously that took priority. But now that things have calmed down a bit from that front, I want to go back to that. Especially since the new GM is apparently pretty high on Alonso. And he said that there's uh, a very good chance that he's the starting first baseman when the season starts next year. So just to refresh... Alonzo didn't commit a single error in 27 games with the Scottsdale Scorpions during the AFL season. He has the reputation of not being a good defender, and going errorless in 27 games isn't going to change that. And I want to go into just a little more detail about what I mean by him not being a good defender. Because if the Mets do decide to promote him and they make him the primary first baseman going forward, it's not like every play at first base is going to be adventure. Um, I mean, it kind of will be, but let me explain. Uh, Alonzo is, is playable at first base, and not everything that he does is bad. He's on the bigger side. He's 6'4", 250 pounds, but it's not like he's fat. He carries it well. He's athletic for a 6'4", 250-pound guy, and he has solid range at first, and he played third base a lot in college, and he has an arm that fits at third. So even though it's not really something that's going to get featured too much at first, he does have a strong arm when he needs it. The biggest problem with Alonzo is that he has, uh, I don't know what to call it, the defensive yips, the Daniel Murphy yips, something. He just makes defensive miscues and errors that leave you scratching your head sometimes. He'll bungle things that come naturally to like a little league kid or your 40-year-old out-of-shape uncle that's super gung-ho about softball, even though he's not really good at it. Some of these things I've seen on MILB-TV. Others are just the stories that are kind of floating around out there. But there's been instances of him misreading fly balls, like can of corn kind of fly balls. There have been instances of him misreading basic grounders and rushing and screwing up his footwork or glove work, things like that. Something interesting about those defensive yips that he gets, and this is something that me and Jeff and Lucas and the newest member of our minor league team, Kenny, were talking about a while ago. A lot of it seems to be on plays that he has time to think about what he's doing. Uh, I remember seeing him make a great play um, at Trenton, 
over the summer. It was like a hard cue shot by some Trenton batter that he just made a great leap for. It wasn't like a loopy hit. It was like a solid line drive at him, and he just kind of made the instinctual jump, and he and he got the out. And then there's stories about him missing tosses from the pitcher or the catcher on like little squibblers that barely got out of the box. So, not last year, but the year before when he was with St. Lucie, he had that monster second half. And one of the things that he attributed to was working with Trad, Chad Croder and hitting coach Louis Natera. I have the MILB article up here in front of me. And one of the things that he had spe- said specifically was that they helped him with the mental aspect of the game. He said things like, quote, um, I had to compartmentalize to get my mind off the struggles. And here's a long one, quote, mentally, I'm a tough son of a bitch. After I hurt my hand, I was hitting 150 something at one point, And that was incredibly difficult on me. But I finished at 286. It was rough. Not only was it the injury, but I was struggling even after coming back. After the all-star break, I had to claw my way back one step at a time. Whether it did well or poorly, I had to flush it. Make each game its own thing. Isolate it. I can't think about hitting 300 when I have a game that day. But once I got rolling, there's a kind of desperation to show all that was past me. So, for whatever reason, the mental stuff was affecting him when it came to the bat. And he was able to get over that. Uh, He quieted his doubts and the voices in his head. And he's been like a 280 hitter ever since. And I'm not trying to be an armchair psychologist or anything, but I wonder if the same exact stuff is holding him back defensively. Uh, In that same interview, he said that his defense is generally making a plan by thinking about the plays that's happening and then going and doing that. So maybe he's getting in his head and thinking too much. Again, he has passable solid physical tools, and he's been playing the position for a long enough time that he should, you know know how the position works, what you need to do. And he makes those reaction plays just fine. Maybe he just thinks about it too much, just like he was when he was struggling with the bat, and he gets in his own way. Whatever the case may be, though, barring a trade, we're going to see him in Queens next season, be it opening day, or a few weeks into the season, or June, or something. And the bat is pretty good, and the power is off the charts, and we know that offense isn't going to be a problem. So hopefully his defense will be something that the team can live with and he's not, you know, destined to be like a a full-time DH somewhere in the American League. I've liked Alonzo since day one, since the day he was drafted, and I would definitely like to see him with the Mets for a while, and I'm sure that everybody out there agrees.